Well, do sit down. I know it's hot, and I know what happens when someone stands up at the front to start speaking. You seem to get incredibly sleepy. Uh, I'm sure that'll be true for some of you tonight, so let's work hard together. I'll try and not make God's excellent work uh, dull. Um, and you can help me by, if you see somebody sitting beside you with their eyes closed or yawning, uh, don't assume they're starting to pray, just nudge them gently in the side. Um, you can apologise uh, later for that. But let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, we uh, want to uh, walk in your commandments. And we want your law to be our joy. And we ask that you would please give us a heart that loves your will and is free from discontentment and envy. Well, we know your word is powerful and effective and can change us. So we ask that it would do its work in our hearts and that you would help us to listen carefully. Amen. I will do open a Bible near you and back to the reading we had from Luke 14 on page 1047. If you're here for the first time or you're back after being away for a few weeks, we're looking in these evenings at some of Jesus' parables from Luke, uh, these stories that teach spiritual truths. Uh, You'll remember if you were here when we began the series, we we heard these words from Jesus about how we should approach his words. And back in chapter 8, you don't need to look at it, but he said this, Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. And that's what we want to do tonight. And we want to listen carefully uh, to his words. A number of students uh, have been graduating uh, this past week. You may have seen them if you've been down around the university in their gowns waiting to have photographs taken. It reminded me of my graduation and my graduation photograph, which is on display only in my mum's house. It's a strange thing. A strange thing if you've been to university and you've graduated. It's a strange thing looking at your graduation photo. I think I have a a great capacity for self-deception. I think I'm basically the same man I was when I graduated at 21, 14 years ago. I look at that one photograph, see my side parting in my hair. Uh, You're laughing, you don't think I'd suit uh, a side parting anymore, perhaps. Um, But I see that side parting and my self-deception is brought to an end. Reality is restored. Uh, softened only slightly by the encouragement from my mum who assures me that I still look good. Now these parables, these parables that we're looking at, if, if we listen carefully, uh, can work the same way as that photograph. Self-deception ended. Reality restored. And they'll even give encouragement. Uh, three things uh, we want to see tonight. Uh, three realities Uh, we're going to look at. The the first one is is this. Sin, even if we're religious, is really deceptive. Sin, even if we're religious, is really deceptive. Uh, Secondly, God is extremely generous with salvation. Extremely generous with salvation. Uh, And finally, uh, Jesus is the one who makes his face up to reality. Uh, Before we get to them, let's Let's just see what's going on in the story. Have a look at verse 1 in chapter 14, if it's there before you. Uh, You read these words. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. They were looking at him. Uh, By this stage in his ministry, things have become more than strained between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. 
On more than one occasion, there's been disputes regarding the Sabbath, amongst other things. Uh, The last time came in the previous chapter, but here in chapter 14, you can tell things aren't good. Uh, Jesus is being carefully watched. And you might have noticed when we read it earlier in verse 4, that when Jesus asks two questions, no one even speaks to him, won't even answer him. Uh, You've probably been in situations like that. And there's just a massive tension in the air. And the hostility is obvious, if unspoken. Awkward silences are the worst, aren't they, in those kind of situations. It's just really awkward. It's usually at times like that I'll say something like, cup of tea, anyone? Cup of tea? You just want something to start a conversation. Well, here it's Jesus that starts the conversation. He tells some parables again. They all kind of revolve around food and banquets. We won't go into the first two in detail. We're going to concentrate on the third one, but let me just draw your attention to them briefly. In in verses 7 to 11, you see Jesus notices the way the guests at the the meal he's at aim for the places of honour for themselves. And so he tells a parable about taking the humble seat at a wedding feast. Now, the point of which seems to be uh, is to tell them that when it comes to God, in the end it's the humble and not the arrogant who will be exalted. And then in verses 12 to 14, he, he tells his host, oh, when you give a dinner, don't just invite the type of people who can repay you. Invite those who have nothing to give back. Invite those society thinks of as excluded. For example, the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the point here is uh, that's the way God operates in some way. And he'll reward actions like that. And it's after the second story we eventually get something from one of the others at the table. Finally, they say something. It's verse 15 if you want to have a look at it. It seems all this talk of food and banquets has jogged this guest into making just a brief remark. And here it is, verse 15. Uh, This is what we get out of them. After all the awkward silences, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. That's his remark. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Why does he say that? Well, as a Jew who read his Bible, he'd know that this world's problems won't last forever. And God had promised that one day he'd sort everything out. He'd bring an end to suffering and sin. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? When you look at the Middle East, or the corruption that you see in public life, and it covers everything from governments all the way down to football clubs cheating in their positions in their football leagues. It goes all the way through life. Even even the mess we deal with in our families. Even those selfish attitudes we find in our own hearts. But God says that's what he's going to do. He's going to get rid of all that stuff. And when we ask, well... What's it going to be like, God? What will it be like? Well, it's a good question. How would you describe the perfect kind of life? Well, God describes it in various ways through the Bible. In Isaiah 25, actually, if you have a Bible in front of you, turn back to page 708. I think that's where it is. Isaiah 25. And verse 6, 
he, he kind of describes it, I, I'm not sure if it's poetically, but you'll get this kind of picture language. He, he kind of describes this future life, this perfect life, in terms of a menu. So for those of you who like food, ah, this will appeal to you. At verse 6, Isaiah 25, God says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wines. And then a little bit further down, you hear these words, The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all the faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. I'll turn back to Luke again. Uh, Keep that in mind, though. You understand how this metaphor works. Uh, You think what we've seen in the news this week. You look at the people fleeing from Lebanon, traveling for a couple of days, frightened and hungry. Uh, And you see the people not able to leave. Children with tear-stained faces. Your heart goes out to them. Uh, You want someone to give them something to eat, clean their faces, make them smile again. And you maybe start to imagine a world where they've always got enough to eat and where there's nothing left to frighten, only things to make them smile. And that's what God says his plan is. Life's so good, it's like a feast. But the food is just great. And tears will very, very quickly give way to smiles and smiles to giggles and giggles to laughter. And God's promised that one day for the people he saves. It's good. And whatever you think of that, you might be here and you're not a Christian, you think, well, that's just pie-in-the-sky stuff. But the Bible says that's the reality that God has promised. Whatever you do think of that, you'll at least understand what this man means by verse 15 now. Back in Luke 14, blessed is the man who will eat at this feast in the kingdom of God. Of course you'll be blessed if you get to be here. In actual fact, though, he's suggesting something a little stronger. What he's getting at is more like, aren't we, the Jewish leaders, going to be blessed at this feast in the kingdom of God? Aren't we, the the really spiritual Jewish leaders, going to be blessed at this feast in the kingdom of God? You see, with a throwaway remark, during a painfully awkward dinner party, he tells us, he's confident, he and his buddies are on great terms with God and they're looking forward to heaven. And it's that that prompts Jesus' final parable over dinner. So here's the first reality. It comes in verses 15 to 20. Sin, even if we're religious, is really deceptive. The parable starts in verse 16. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. Now, in their culture, a host would send out invitations. People would reply to say they were coming. You you had enough notice, your diary would be free. And then when things were ready, someone would call for you. Come, come and enjoy the party. It's all ready. It wouldn't be a surprise. It's what you've apparently been waiting for. And in this parable, it happens. Verse 17, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. But they all began to make excuses. There in verse 18, number one, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Verse 19, number two, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. That's a lot of oxen in the day. To have five yoke, you must have loads of fields. This is a wealthy man. 
I've just bought all these oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Now, verse 20, number 3, I've just got married, so I can't come. Now, the people invited refuse to come to the banquet. And you understand what Jesus is saying. It's not that obscure, is it? To these Jewish leaders, you know what he's saying. You think you're going to God's feast? You think you're going to heaven? Why would you think that? You're the ones who are refusing his invitation. It's odd, isn't it? Well, they say, we're looking forward to God's kingdom. And Jesus says, you're refusing to enter God's kingdom. Now, where does Jesus get that from? Um, My knowledge of chemistry is limited. It wasn't one of my better subjects at school. I can remember a few elements from the periodic table and litmus paper. That's about all I can remember from chemistry. You you remember litmus paper yourselves. I'm I'm sure you dip it in a liquid and it will change colour to show if the liquid is acidic or alkaline. I'm sorry if you're a chemistry teacher. I'm one of these failed people who didn't quite understand it. But litmus paper I've got. You, You dip it in a liquid and it tells you whether the liquid is acid or alkali. Well, the beginning of of Luke 14, I think is a little bit like a spiritual litmus test on these Jewish leaders. Now, let me show you what I mean. Just have a look again at verse 1. Luke tells us uh, what day all this happens on. He tells us all this took place one Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath often doesn't mean much to us, but for the Jews it was a big deal. When, when you read the Ten Commandments, keeping the Sabbath, this one day of rest, is linked with creation in Exodus 20. You'll read these words if you look at it later. Remember the Sabbath, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but he rested on the seventh. And it's also linked with God's rescue in Deuteronomy 5. So you'll read these words, observe the Sabbath. Remember that when you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand. See, the goal of creation, it seems, is Sabbath rest. The goal of God's rescue from Egypt is Sabbath rest. And you'll understand rest when the Bible uses it like that. It's not kind of sitting around in your garden doing nothing. It's wholeness. It's harmony. It's life just as it should be. And the Sabbath was like a signpost for God's people. A signpost saying, this is where you're headed if you trust God. This is the journey you're on. God has committed to bringing you back to wholeness. It's it's another way of explaining this feast idea. Real life. So one day a week, you stop your work. To remind you, it's not your work that will achieve this. It's God who's going to achieve it for you. God who will come and provide it for you. He'll restore creation. Make it possible for sinful people to be whole. Do away with every misery caused by sin. Do you see what happens at the beginning of Luke 14? It comes just at the second verse. On this Sabbath day, at this dinner party, Jesus encounters a man suffering from dropsy. And he heals him. He makes him whole. Wholeness. Uh, The very thing the Sabbath pointed towards. Well, uh, this is it, isn't it? Uh, God has come and on the Sabbath, he's making someone 
whole. Jesus must be God. He's come to rescue people. Wholeness is going to be found in him. God has promised that heavenly feast. And Jesus has now come with the invitation, come, look, everything is ready. How do they respond to Jesus? Do they acknowledge who he is? Is there gratitude and excitement? No, verse 6, they had nothing to say to him. Verse 7 You read that and you see they're concerned with taking the places of honour for themselves. It's quite a thought, isn't it, for a dinner party. God has come to dinner. He's demonstrated that he's God. He offers them wholeness. Do they offer him the seat of honour? No, they blank God. They ignore him. Elbow their way past and relegate him to the budget seat. Have you ever had to endure watching someone being rude to another person? You're around at their house. Maybe the wife makes cutting comments about her husband in front of guests. It's embarrassing. It's awkward to be there. It's one of the ways sin works in our hearts, filled with our own importance. We treat others badly and we, we hardly even notice it. But it's worse than that. Because sin makes us treat God like that. Now that's what these people are doing. It's it way beyond embarrassment, isn't it? And you, you understand this. As they're pushing God out of the way, one of them has the audacity to say, wouldn't it be great when we're eating at God's house? As they elbow past him, wouldn't it be great when we eat at his house? Uh, The people in the parable, they all refuse the invitation because they think they've got something better. It seems the Pharisees do the same. Even as they hold on to their religious traditions, they reject God even when he's in front of them. But they continue to talk as if they trust him. They were being shown something about sin here. I see sin, even if we're religious is really deceptive. Convinces that we're all right, that we're even trusting God when we're ignoring him. See, I find these parables decidedly uncomfortable. I know we've not had God round to dinner, but do you think we don't live our lives before him? Is it possible that while we talk about God, we actually ignore his invitation? That we're too caught up with our own importance? You might be here and you're not a Christian and you kind of tell yourself, well, if there is a God, I'll be okay with him. I'll be fine. Can I say, sin is really deceptive. That's the kind of thing it tells you. Tries to persuade you of that. It's not true. Maybe you've been coming to church for years, a fine member of the community. Is it possible you've ignored Jesus, that you too are only self-confident? Sin, even if we're religious, is really deceptive. See how the parable ends in verse 24? I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Watch out, says Jesus. One day there will be a great reversal. The humble, not the arrogant, will be honoured. 
can you imagine going to a wedding this summer, chatting with friends, and you go through for dinner and realize your name is not on the table plan? Can you imagine when this life is over, as the guests take their seats for God's eternal banquet, and you discover that your name is not on the seating plan? A feast was offered, and you'll be hungry for eternity. Well, let's think about the second thing. God, God is extremely generous with salvation. Uh, there are several li- little benefits in working for Christchurch here. One of them is being invited to staff lunch on a Monday. I remember when I started, there's a, a staff lunch at the vicarage. I thought this was great. I'm, I'm there with the team. I'm getting to know them. Lunch was provided. It was really good. And then Hugh and Claire left. Hugh, our previous vicar, left. And And Paul and Caroline came. And most of you were wondering, what are Paul and Caroline going to be like? Will there be changes at church? But I was thinking, what about lunch on Mondays? (laughs) Will I still be invited? Will it be as good? Will I like it? And I was invited. And it is really good. And I do like it. And Caroline and Paul are generous with their home and their cooking. And then you come back to this quite hard-hitting parable. And you ask, well, what is this God like who says such strong things about people not even getting a taste? And you start to think, while others are refusing the invite, is there room for me? Will I be invited? How do I get there? And Jesus carries on in verses 21 to 23. He carries on to tell us that even in light of people rejecting God, God is extremely generous with salvation. Uh, The owner in our parable, God in reality, orders his servant, verse 21, he says this, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. Have you ever done one of those domino rallies? You know know the kind of thing, I mean, where you line up hundreds or or thousands of of dominoes and you push the first one down and it knocks the next and the next all the way to the end and they're all knocked down in about five minutes. It takes you about four days to set them up and they're all over quite quickly. I'm a bit sad. I love watching that kind of thing. Record breakers, they were always doing that every couple of weeks. I I quite like those kind of domino rallies, those things falling down. But in a little way, I I find Jesus' words a little like a domino rally. If you don't get this, this is just how my mind works. But do you ever find that as he tells you something and you start to think it through, it's like it pushes over something else for you and something else and something else. And you see what he's getting at and his words land right at your feet like a a thousand dominoes telling you all about God's generosity. See, when it comes to this feast, this picture of God's salvation, Jesus is saying to you, there is enough room for you. Do you see, the concern of the owner is not, how many do we have space for? See, if there is a concern, it seems to be, how will I fill my house? See, when we give parties, the anxiety is often, will there be enough room, enough food, too many people? With God, the concern is, will there be enough people to enjoy my lavish generosity? In verse 22, the servants say, there is still room 
And verse 23, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. God has decided to give a party and he wants it full of people. There is enough room for you. And it's not just that there is enough room for you as the the dominoes of Jesus' words start to tumble. You see that it's also God wants you there. He wants you there. You can't help but notice the way the invitations are going out. The boundaries are getting bigger and bigger. Streets and alleys and then right out of the city are the roads, the country lanes. God wants everyone to be there. God wants you there. Have you ever thought? Over these past few weeks, past few months, I, I don't imagine God would really want me. It might be that you're already a Christian and for all sorts of reasons you started to feel that. It might be that you're not a Christian and you've been thinking, even if there is a God, the way the Bible describes him, I'm not the kind of person God would be interested in. So it's not true. You hear Jesus' words and he's saying, God wants you there. The invitation's going out. And it's all free. You see the owner, you see who the owner is inviting at verse 21? Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. What is it with these people that make them good examples of who receives God's generosity? I think the answer is back in in verse 13. Just just turn back there for a moment. Oh, you don't need to turn back. It's on the same page, I think. Look back there. You'll hear these words in the previous parable. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. And then you hear these words, although they cannot repay you. You see what Jesus is getting at. The kind of people who respond to God's invitation are the kind of people who know they need God's generosity. They have nothing to give God. My friend, before God, you are poor, crippled, blind and lame. And so am I. We can't pay God back for this. But it's all right. It's free for you. It's free for me because of Jesus. I knew a student, a Christian girl up in New York. She was, she was kind of a, a Christian equivalent of the SAS. I don't know if you've ever met people like that. Uh, she was out hanging or washing up one evening, she told me. Came back in to hear someone upstairs. She shouted out, you're obviously here to rob me, come down. And a guy in a ski mask came to the top of the stairs with a, a, a large uh, black bag, with, obviously full of stuff. And Rachel said, well, you have two choices. You're stronger than me. You could push your way past and run off with my things. Or you can come into the kitchen, take off your mask, I'll make you a cup of tea and I'll tell you something that will change your life. It's it's quite an invitation, isn't it? (laughs) He goes to her church now. Another time she was having dinner by herself at a restaurant in New York. She saw a homeless chap outside, said she couldn't enjoy her meal with him sitting outside. So she went out and persuaded him to join her. You think about that, she was persuading him, please come in and have a meal with me. 
He, he wasn't up for it at the start, but eventually he came in. She persuaded him to join her, have a meal with her. I kind of imagine myself at the next table as this chap, who's probably a bit smelly, uh, sitting next to me now, thinking, what have you brought him in here for? I'm just like a Pharisee. I'm turning my nose up at God's generosity, thinking I don't really need it and I'm better off than other people. See, even though arrogant people sniff at God's generosity, God remains extremely generous with salvation. There is room for you. God wants you there. It is God's free gift through Jesus. My Christian friends, do people laugh at you for trusting Jesus? Do they wonder why you hang out with those people at church? And Jesus says one day there will be a great reversal. And those who have sniffed at God's generosity will think, what a fool I've been. Well, finally, just to say, it is Jesus who makes his face up to reality. It's all been about him in this story. It's him that starts it off. It's the way people are rejecting him. Because with Jesus, it's a response to him that signals a response to God. And it's a response to him now that settles our future eternity. You understand for Jesus, healing somebody who's physically sick is, is no real problem. The real problem is, how can God restore sinful people? How can he forgive and make them whole? The answer is explained throughout Luke's gospel, culminates in the end at the cross. It's Jesus' death on the cross. God come to rescue people for himself, to restore wholeness. In his death, he takes our punishment. He is broken to make us whole. And Jesus becomes the servant in the story saying, Come, for everything is now ready. You can be made ready for this great banquet if you come and trust in this death. In his death, everything has been done so that sinful people can be forgiven and made ready to enjoy God's great banquet. And it starts... For all of us, when we humble ourselves, acknowledge and accept Jesus as our rightful Lord, and we'll find him a generous saviour. A couple of things to think about then. It should be a reminder to us, all this talk, isn't it, if we're Christians already, and never to become arrogant. Always to be humble. And it should remind us as well that God is concerned about people. He wants his house to be full of people. He likes having them around. And what was it, the words in the story? Go out quickly. Go out to the roads and make them come in. The idea is is not forcing them, but urging them. A bit like Rachel, persuading unlikely guests. And with people who don't really know God, I don't know the good things he's offering, we encourage them to come. That's a thought for this week, isn't it? Who might God put you beside this week? As someone we can talk to about the Lord Jesus. A colleague, a school friend, someone on the bus, the man who cleans your windows, a fellow guest at a wedding. Everyone can be invited. And again, it might be here that you're not a Christian. 
Uh, this is something to ponder, really, as you consider the claims of Jesus. Uh, there is an urgency to this story. Go out quickly. Uh, God has decided to throw a party. The date is unknown to us, but it is fixed. In verse 22, the servant says, There is still room. And there is for you. If you're not a Christian here tonight, there is still room for you to come. It's a terrible thing to refuse God's generous offer. But it's a really stupid thing to never really consider it. You've come this far. And you've made it along to Fullwood. Don't leave it here. How will you respond to the words of Jesus? Come, for everything is now ready. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your words are very clear and very penetrating. We ask that you'd help us with sin's deceptiveness. Help us not to be saying one thing and actually doing another. Please help us always to be humble before you and to trust you and to respond to your generous invitation. And for those of us who are considering it, Lord Jesus, help us not to put it aside or to elbow our way past you. Please help us to understand your generous offer and to respond to it in a right way. And we ask it in your name. Amen. I can just say it might be that you are here and you're not a Christian and you'd like to find out a bit more about Christianity. Maybe you're here for the first time, you'd like to talk to someone or find out if there's more reading that you can do. Uh, there's these little cards up at the back uh, that just a way for you to give us some contact details. And if you want someone to get in touch with you or to let you know about courses, finding out about Christianity, uh, we can let you have uh, that. So please do, if you'd like to find out more, fill in one of these at the back and leave them with someone who's around or come up uh, and give it to me. We're going to sing our final song together. It's on the the back of your sheet. There's a place where the streets shine with the glory of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. This is a song that just reminds us what the future has in store uh, for Christians, for those who trust the Lord Jesus. And it's a song that wants to keep persuading us this is the good life that we're heading towards. As the music begins, we'll stand and sing together.